For Pacifica Radio, September 14th, 2023, I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, y'all, welcome to the show. It is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm the editorial director of Antiwar.com, and I'm the author of the book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. You can find my full interview archive, almost 6,000 of them now, going back 20 years there, at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow, and at all the other video sites and stuff slash scotthortonshow. And you can follow me on Twitter, if you dare, at Scott Horton Show. And speaking of which, if you do that, you can go and uh, click on a speech I gave on September 11th, just three days ago there, on the anniversary uh, for a group here in Texas where I explained the American policy of global hegemony and how it provoked Al-Qaeda and Russia and how we're working on China next. So that's all at my uh, Twitter feed if you want to go look at that. Slash Scott Horton Show. All right. Introducing the great Kyle Anzalone. He is our opinion editor at Antiwar.com and our news editor at the Institute. And he hosts a great podcast called Conflicts of Interest. And boy, have you been working hard lately. Welcome back to the show, Kyle. How are you doing? Doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me back. Very happy to have you here and very happy to uh, read all your stuff, keeping me up to date on everything going on in the world. Of course, the only thing going on in the world. The war in Ukraine. Zelensky blames West for failed counteroffensive. Well, I guess it wouldn't be his fault, would it? <laughs> Tell us the story there. Yeah, so he was on with CNN and giving an interview with Fareed Zakaria. And he was basically asked about the counteroffensive. And he said that Ukraine waited too long and that Russia laid down minefields and Ukraine didn't have enough weapons to launch the counteroffensive. And so... I, I do feel for Zelensky a little bit here because I do think there's some truth to what he was saying that uh, when the New York Times first started reporting that the U.S. was helping Ukraine prepare for a spring counteroffensive in southern Ukraine, that was in March. And at that time, Zelensky asked for more weapons. And in May, he was still asking for more weapons during that, that for that counteroffensive. And so, you know, there were a lot of us at the time who were observing. It seemed like the West had really... Uh, maybe shown their hand a little bit too early on this counteroffensive because Russia was just fortifying these defenses in the south, and uh, for some you know reason uh, that you know they really pushed Ukraine to launch that counteroffensive in June after you know Russia prepared for months for it, mm -hmm. and the Ukrainian forces predictably failed and have just ran into an absolute buzzsaw. And uh, you know Zelensky has just fed his own people into it. All right. Well, a couple things about that, Kyle. First of all, we're talking about the American military establishment, the least competent military professionals on the planet, the guys who just lost to the Taliban, the guys who have not won a war since 1945, unless you count Grenada. Some people try to count Iraq War One, but I don't. Look what it led to. But um, he's right. <laughs> You're right in the sense that they announced for months, for half a year or more leading up to it, where they were even going to attack. We're going to try to bisect, you know, that land bridge between the Crimean Peninsula and the Donbass. And then it wasn't a feint or anything. That was what they did. And with no air cover, 
and with far too few armored vehicles, as Zelensky complains. And so, yeah, the whole thing was guaranteed to be a turkey shoot. And they even send the Wall Street Journal a couple of times that, well, look, we just had to prove that we're capable of showing up and doing work. Otherwise, the Americans are just going to stop paying us. So we got to do something. And this is something. So we got to do it. And at the same time, wouldn't it also the weather's fault? Because this was supposed to be the winter offensive. But the ground never froze, and so they would have just been stuck in the mud. It would have been a disaster for other reasons then. And so then they had to wait till the spring, and then it was a very wet spring. So they had to wait till the summer for the ground to dry out enough to even try to bring their track vehicles in there to even make a difference. But uh, as Don Rumsfeld says, you go to war with the army you have, and in this case, they just didn't have nearly enough for the mission. And, again telegraphed exactly what they were doing up front and gave the Russians all the time in the world to, as Zelensky says here, defeat them with simple landmines, 50 cents a piece, you know? Right. And my point isn't to agree with Zelensky that the West should have delivered weapons faster, just that the uh, actual policy didn't make any sense and uh, led to a predictable failure. And, and I think Zelensky is right about those things. Yeah. Well, and... You know, I don't know about the numbers. You can't ever really believe anybody, but it's clearly 10,000 or more something Ukrainians have died in the offensive so far, been killed in the most horrible ways. And I think the more, you know, kind of conservative estimates say they've lost over 70,000 killed. That's not including the uh, wounded, just the killed. 70,000, that's more than America lost in Vietnam over almost 10 years. And so where are we now? I mean, I saw last week there were at least some headlines, Kyle, that said that they were making some real progress in a couple of places. Yeah. You you know, Scott, I guess when you're at gaining meters of territory a day, if you turn that into gaining tens of uh, meters of territory a day, then you could change the headlines to say that you're gaining momentum. Uh, But in reality, it, it hasn't meant very much on the ground. And now we've had you know, sources from within the U.S. government saying that there's no way they're going to meet their first or second objectives in this counteroffensive. And so uh, Blinken was in Kiev last week and announced that the U.S. is giving Ukraine depleted uranium and those will be uh, for the U.S. Abrams tanks that I I think they're saying are expected to arrive in Ukraine mid-September. So uh, they may be there now. They may be on their way there. Who knows? Uh, when they're actually going to end up in Ukraine, Scott. But uh, so so that's what they're announcing. And they're looking really long term for this war because, you know, they're talking about F-16s gain to Ukraine. And we have U.S. generals admitting uh, that those really won't make a difference on the battlefield for four or five years. They're talking about 2027 uh, for Ukraine to be able to operate the F-16s in a way where they would uh, really be able to make a difference. It really is insane to hear them talk about that. The same way they said, you know, a decade ago, yes, we'll be fighting the long war against the jihadi terrorists for generations to come. Now they're saying that about Russia. Yeah, we're just going to be fighting Russia. Forget Cold War. We're going to have proxy war right on their border for, yeah, through the end of the decade at least, you know. (laughs) What? They're crazy. We're not going to live that long if that's the case. Something's going to escalate out of control before all of that's over. Anybody could see that. We need regime change here as soon as possible. 
Yeah, or, or we're going to run out of Ukrainians. I mean, I think in, in the initial opening of the war, a lot of us were talking about how this is, you know, fighting Russia until the last Ukrainian, although, you know, with some sarcasm or exaggeration in there. But that really does seem to be the policy. I, I read an article in Foreign Policy Today, Scott, where the author is uh, basically explaining that what we need to continue to do is incrementally increase the kinds of weapons that we give Ukraine so that we don't provoke Russia into a major escalation, but we keep Russia fighting in Ukraine for as long as we can. And, and so, if and if you look uh, on the page of antiwar.com today, Dave DeCamp has a great article about how Russia has doubled its uh, ammo output, and they're now making two million shells a year. And so, just if you look, if you turn this into a war of attrition, it's clear that Russia is going to win, but that's clearly what they're doing as well. And so uh, you're feeding Ukraine into a war of attrition, and, and this is your supposed ally. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah, and I love the way they frame that too, that piece of foreign policy, that yeah, we just want to keep the Russians in the war as long as we can. Not we want to force them out of Ukraine and liberate our friends that we love and care about so much, but no, we want to prolong the war just to make it expensive for Russia. And they just keep saying it out loud, too. They don't know that this is supposed to be for their little, you know, dinner party conversation. Right. We should all be horrified by it because, you know, this is supposed to be in defense of the Ukrainian state. And really, it's the destruction of Ukraine, uh, you know, almost entirely. Uh, I, I think if you look at it now, Scott, I feel like it would be very unlikely if Russia really doesn't push to take Odessa and try to cut off Ukraine from the Black Sea. And whatever is going to be left of Ukraine will, will not be in any way a state that resembles what it was before the war, especially when you look at the destruction and how many Ukrainians are uh, probably going to settle outside of the country if the war goes on for three, four, five years. People aren't going to return. Although I, I did see Ukraine is now trying to send draft papers to uh, Ukrainians who had, le who had left the country previously and are living elsewhere in Europe. Oh, yeah, I'm sure that's going to work. Well, listen, um, speaking of Odessa, it seems like Kharkiv would be first. And I had read that there was some progress going on from the Russians' point of view as far as them retaking that from the Ukrainians. Is that right? So Russia has made some progress in that region. And, you know, if you read analysis of this, Scott, some people say that Russia is doing this to try to draw Ukraine's attention away from other areas of Ukraine and uh, Russia has shown that they're really not interested in this city by the fact that they uh, withdrew from the areas around it earlier in the war, uh, or you know that this is Russia's plan that while Ukraine is distracted in the the south, that they're going to start to move on these Ukrainian territories in the east. Yeah. All right. Now let's talk about the escalation from the Russian side on drone strikes. Well, and for that matter, I guess Ukraine's drone strikes on Crimea, and then uh, Russia's got drones and uh, missiles hitting back at Kiev. Update us there. Yeah, so in the past week, I mean, dozens of Russian drones have been fired at Kiev. Of course, you know, both sides just put out, we intercepted all the other side's uh, projectiles, whether they're missiles or drones or something like that, and any damage that occurs 
either in Crimea or Kiev is always attributed to uh, the the debris of the interception that came down and injured some people. So Kiev will occasionally report a, a few injuries or something like this. They tend to report more injuries or uh, more damage if it happens to something that people will be a little bit more outraged by. So uh, some drone debris lands on a schoolyard, then they're going to make a big deal out of it, where if you know a missile strike gets through on a military target, they tend to downplay that. So it's really hard to know exactly how this is impacting the battlefield and how much success Russia is having with this drone campaign uh, in Ukraine, just because everything we get out of the Ukrainian side is propaganda. Ukraine is also stepping up its attacks outside uh, or on Russian territory. Uh, that's Crimea and, you know, Russia itself. And uh, Antony Blinken, our secretary of state, just signed off on this over the weekend. So uh, there's a really good article by Caitlin Johnstone by this. And then Dave DeCamp wrote it up at antiwar.com as well. Uh, but, you know, Blinken gave a straight green light for Ukraine to carry out attacks inside of Russia with American or British weapons. We just had a, a British Storm Shadow missile. It's a cruise missile used to attack uh, a Russian, I believe, port on in Crimea, damaged a couple warships. Russia says no big deal. They'll get repaired quickly. Uh, Ukraine also launched some drone strikes on Russia while Russia was holding local elections. And, and this was happening across Russia but also in Russia-occupied territories of Ukraine, so Zaporizhia. And there, there was a Ukrainian drone that was reported to have hit and destroyed an election facility. So uh, lots of you know drone attacks going on, and it does seem to be escalating more towards uh, Kiev, Ukraine's capital, and then Ukraine carrying out attacks inside of Russia. Mm-hmm. All right, so talk about uh, what's going on with Romania, because I know that at least... At first, there was some confusion about whether there had been some Russian drone strikes there on the wrong side of the river, Kyle. So we had Ukraine tell us, I believe on September 4th, that there were Russian drones that struck on the uh, Romanian side of the border where Russia was carrying out an attack on a Ukrainian port. And uh, that port is on the Danube River that separates Romania and Ukraine. And so, you know, Ukraine... Ukraine portrayed it as a Russia attack on Romania. Romania quickly downplayed this and said it didn't happen at all. Uh, A couple days later, uh, some, I believe, journalists, I believe it was CNN's Romania affiliate, turned up some uh, debris that they said was from a Russian drone. It's unclear if maybe that drone was intercepted in Ukraine and then it crash landed in inside of Romania. But Romania has downplayed this, saying that it presents absolutely no threat at all to Romania. NATO has also downplayed this and says, it, you know, no chance that this leads to Article 5 or anything like that. So I, I think the fear here, Scott, is that Ukraine is going to use this as propaganda to try to get NATO more involved in the war. The good news is, is that NATO, Romania are showing no interest in playing along with Kiev. Yeah, well, that's good. And in fact, if anything, there's a benefit in seeing the Ukrainians say, Article 5, Article 5, see, you have to go fight them for us now. And then it's just silence in the room. That Look at the fight that they want to get us in. I got one of these quotes I collected for the book. I probably poached it from you in the first place, where one of these guys is asked, uh, one of the military leaders of Ukraine is asked, but, you know, what if this leads to a nuclear war? And he says, well, look, we're already in a war anyway, so what difference does it make to us? That's the way they look at it. It's completely crazy. We're going to let people like that decide 
uh, just how far a war with Russia goes. They said, remember, at the start of the war, General Milley said, rule number two of the war, keep it contained inside Ukraine. Yeah, well, so much for that. And now, have they made an official move on these so-called attackums yet, these longer-range artillery pieces, Kyle? Not to my knowledge. It's uh, been reported that that decision is coming soon, but they haven't announced the weapons package uh, that's coming in. And, of course, you know it's important to remember that once they announce it, sometimes they really do rush the new weapons to the battlefield, and that may happen this time because— our chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, says Ukraine only has about 30 to 45 days of good fighting weather left. And uh, we know that the spring counteroffensive was meant to be kind of a propaganda move for the American people to see Ukraine making some success. So, you know, maybe once they announce it, they'll try to rush them to the battlefield uh, so Ukraine could uh, color in and change the territory of the map a little bit more uh, before they have to call an end to the, the fighting because of the weather change. Uh, but at the same time, they could drag it out out of fear that Ukraine is going to use these to attack Russian cities or something, and it could take a long time for them to reach the battlefield. But I do expect uh, that announcement that they're sending them sometime in the future to come pretty soon. Give me just a minute here. At the Libertarian Institute, we publish books, real good ones. So far, we've got Will Griggs' No Quarter, Sheldon Richmond's Coming to Palestine, and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other, and four of mine. Fool's Aaron, Enough Already, The Great Ron Paul, and my brand new one, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And I'm happy to announce that we've just published our managing editor Keith Knight's first one, The Voluntarist Handbook, an excellent collection of essays by the world's greatest libertarian thinkers and writers, including me. Check them all out at libertarianinstitute.org books. And for a limited time, signed copies of Enough Already and Hotter Than the Sun are available at scotthorton.org books. Hey guys, I had some wasps in my house. So I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from Amazon.com. By way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. It's Anti-War Radio. I'm Scott Horton. Talking with Kyle Anzalone from the Institute and Antiwar.com. And so what's all this about uh, Elon Musk committing high treason by not getting us into a nuclear war? I knew I had a problem with that guy. Had to be something. So... Elon Musk, of course, owns SpaceX, and SpaceX manufactures and maintains Starlink, which is a, a low-orbiting satellites that if you have a node for it, you could get internet provided to you. And so early in the war, uh, Ukraine, or Starlink provided, I want to say, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of these to Ukraine, and then allowed them to use them free of charge to maintain government services, and that included the military. However, uh, SpaceX was pretty specific that these are not meant to be weapons. They're meant to be communications. And I, I'm sure some people see it as, you know, maybe trying to split hairs to say that we're going to allow a general to communicate with, you know, his soldiers and order them to carry out an attack that way versus, you know, at using Starlink to relay to a drone that then goes and explodes. Uh, but SpaceX does draw a difference there. And if you look at their terms of service, they say it's because of the uh, U.S. Arms Export Act, where 
if Starlink is used on weapons, then, uh, you know, it should be subject to arms control. And previously in the war, when Ukraine tried to do this, Starlink stopped it or SpaceX stopped it and did something with the Starlink system to prevent uh, Ukraine from using them on drones or, or for actual attacks. And so uh, that's that's uh, SpaceX policy. And then there was a report that what happened was is Ukraine was carrying out an attack on uh, Russia's cry, uh, fleet in the Black Sea uh, in Crimea. And there was an explosive drone that was headed to the location. And uh, Elon Musk decided himself to deactivate Starlink uh, to prevent that drone from, from reaching its target. Now, later we learned that, that that's not the truth. What actually happened was Ukraine made an emergency request at the last minute from Starlink to give them additional range uh, for the, their attached submarine and Ukraine and Starlink uh, SpaceX said no to Ukraine on that. And, and so this has been portrayed as treason, as Elon Musk stopping an attack, when really that's not the case. It's just SpaceX following their terms of service in yeah. U.S. law. Well, and it's so funny, too, that I guess Ukraine's a state in the union, so if he doesn't follow the orders of their governor, now it's treason against the United States of America or something. And I saw in his statement where he said if the White House had asked him, he would have done it. But it was the Ukrainians asked him in the middle of the night to help them sink Russian ships in their harbor, I guess. And he said that he'd been warned specifically by the Russians that this could lead to a nuclear escalation if they think they're going to lose Crimea. And he said, well... I'm not making that decision to, as you put it correctly, extend the range of the Wi-Fi services so that you can use them to escalate the war into this massive degree, this huge step of escalation without being told by anyone in America to do it. But just being asked by the Ukrainian military for it is completely crazy. Yeah. And if you look at Elon's statements here too, Scott, I mean, you kind of feel bad for him a little bit because he says, like, look, I designed this for people to get on the Internet and work, do homework, watch Netflix. And here it is like being used in an attack that's going to start a world war. Like I never signed up for this. And so I, I do kind of sympathize with him on that. I know he does contract with the Pentagon. His you know, hands aren't completely clean and everything like that. But at the same time, I, I think this guy actually does take exception with his system being used in something that could escalate to nuclear war. And only barely, though, right? He said if seen all old Biden had asked him to do it, he'd have gone ahead. Or if Anthony Blinken or, uh, or I don't know if Blinken counts, Jake Sullivan had asked. Anyway, yeah, I guess uh, as long as he complies with the U.S. law, he's okay with it, maybe. Yeah, well, at that level, there's no law. The president can do what he wants when it comes to especially foreign wars. Um, all right, now, uh, in the last few minutes here, and we don't have that many, I got a couple of your stories here I want to talk about. Uh, West declines to adjust Russian oil price ceiling as Moscow exports above the cap, and G20 weakens condemnation of Russia after India summit. These are two very important stories on the question of America's economic war against Russia since the outbreak of the war a year and a half ago. Well, the full-scale escalation. The real war's been going on since 14, as we all know. But go ahead. Right. So I'll start with the G20, just because I think this is really important where last year in Bali, the G20 signed a statement that explicitly condemned Russia uh, for the invasion of Ukraine. It just hedged the language by saying that 
Uh, some members have different views, but the invasion was bad and we condemn it. So uh, this time that was taken out. It just said that, you know, the war is regrettable and, uh, you know, there's a U.N. Security Council resolution that we affirm and, and that a Security Council resolution does condemn Russia. But in the actual statement that there's no condemnation of Russia, this was, a, a, I think, a really big deal, Scott, because if you look at the New Delhi summit, so this was held in India uh, for the G20. And the Chinese president, the Russian president, uh, both sat it out and stayed home where you had the U.S. and U.K. leaders uh, both attending. And still the, the statement weakened its language on Russia. And I think this uh, really reflects that there's a growing body of countries that no longer want to comply with the U.S. economic war on Russia. And we've seen the expansion of Brits Plus to include uh, sits new countries, including Egypt and Ethiopia, Argentina, and Russia find more and more partners to export oil to. And if you look at the uh, oil uh, cap in, in that article, uh, kind of what I lay out is that initially when the West placed that price cap on Russian oil exports, it did have some effect and Russia had to sell their oil at a discount. They were still able to sell it, but for less. And that discount has now almost completely been erased. I think it was like 20 cents plus dollars at the start of this thing. And now that discount is uh, reported to be as low as $5. And so, you know, Russia is also exporting above the oil price cap. I think their average export price is now $74 a barrel. Uh, so this is really showing that it, it's the, you know, Western economic war against Russia is increasingly ineffective. And we also see this by Russia able to really ramp up its military production. As I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, they're making $2 million uh, rounds of artillery a year that's up from 1 million pre-war. They're also making 200 tanks, and that's up from 100 tanks pre-war. And that's per year? That doesn't sound like that many. Uh, that's uh, the report, and I believe it's actually quite a bit more than the West could produce. Huh. All right. I guess I'd buy that. I mean, I don't know. In fact, as long as we're at it, let me just mention, I don't know if you saw this article. I submitted it to the database at antiwar.com from ProPublica, how the Navy spent billions on the failed literal combat ship program. And it just goes to show, and this, you know, we're talking about the Bradley, you know, and the getting blown to pieces out there. The Bradley is such a piece of junk. A guy wrote a book about it called The Pentagon Wars, and they made a movie about it. People might have seen it. It stars uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights is the uh, Air Force officer sent to investigate the Army's Bradley program. And it was such a death trap. They're going to send their guys out there to just get killed. And that's the same vehicle they ended up making. They've improved it a little bit because of uh, his work. But And then this ProPublica article about the literal combat ship. It's all politics. Has nothing to do with sailing at all. <laughs> nothing to do with war at all. You know, it's just, it's so corrupt. You let them go to war against, you know, any kind of major power. They're going to be swimming. And it's incredible to see. But, um... And yeah. it's not just the literal combat ships, Scott. We also have the Zumwalt class of destroyers. They're supposed to make 32. They only built three because none of them work. They don't have a gun because the rounds are a million dollars each and it's not worth it. And now <laughs> their plan is to put hypersonic launchers on them and they don't even have the hypersonic missiles developed. And so if you look at, you know, major recent projects by the the U.S. military uh, industrial complex, whether that's the uh, little crappy ships, the Zumwalt class, the Ford aircraft carriers, 
uh, or maybe the Reagan aircraft carriers or the F-35s. I mean, they're all riddled with so many problems. They're barely effective. Yeah. They say in this article, they just mentioned as a side point, the $13 billion USS Gerald R. Ford still cannot reliably launch planes. It can't yep. launch planes. What's it for? It's it's just for taking $13 billion from us. That's what it's for. Absolutely. They better pray they don't get in a fight. <laughs> what a funny thing to say about the world's most dominant Navy, but I guess that's how it goes. Um, hey, Kyle, you had this piece from September the 6th. Prosecution unable to locate key evidence in the Discord leaker case. Can you sum that up for us real quick here? Yeah, so Jatchet's share was in court right at the end of August. And uh, during that hearing, it was in a federal court in Boston. And he asked to be released under the custody of his father, which the judge said there was reasons to do, including the fact that he's not a previous offender and his uh, father is a good standing citizen and all this other stuff. But she said they can't in part because they haven't located any of the original classified documents. They haven't located his hard drive or cell phone. So I guess there's kind of two thoughts here. One is that he either destroyed all of this or that maybe it wasn't him. So I, I'm not sure, you know, what the what what's going on here. But I thought this was really interesting and important to point out uh, that they don't seem to have very much evidence on this kid other than uh, his alleged post in this discord uh, room. Well, and, you know, of course, infamously, it was The New York Times that ratted him out and directed the FBI right to him. But maybe they got it wrong. It would not be the first time over there at the Charlie Savage Times where they fail a lot. All right. Well, listen, we're out of time. But thank you so much for your time on the show today. It's been great, Kyle. Appreciate you. Thank you, Scott. All right, you guys. That's Kyle Anzalone. He hosts his own podcast. It's called Conflicts of Interest. And he writes the news at the Institute. And he approves the opinions at Antiwar.com. And that's it for Antiwar Radio for today. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm the editorial director over at Antiwar.com. And you can find my full interview archive at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. And I'm here every Thursday from 2.30 to 3 on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. See you next week. Music